You're listening to High Temperature Times, the refractory podcast brought to you by Harbison Walker International. My name is Griffin Patterson, and I'm an application specialist with HWI. This podcast serves as our way to bring some of the amazing knowledge and stories about the refractory industry to the people who want it most, be it our employees, customers, or just people who love to learn, like me. Today, we're going to talk about dry out of monolithic refractories and what that means for those who use it. Jeff Bogan will be joining me to talk dry out science and technology, followed by Mark Pomacino, who will put that understanding to the test in one of the most intense monolithic using applications, the aluminum industry. As always, I'd like to set the stage with a quick question from our tech marketing inbox. If you've got a question for the refractory experts, send us an email to technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com and use the subject line podcast to get your question features on the show. This month's question comes from Chris Taggart, asking about the impact of temperature in set times for monolithic refractories. I really like this question right now because we're entering the hot months of the year, and that can really affect the set times for castables. Without going into too much detail, the easiest answer is that hotter temperatures can accelerate the set times, while colder temperatures can extend them. Curing is a chemical process, so higher temperatures means those reactions happen faster, while colder temperatures make them happen slower. HWI does have some tricks to control these reactions built in, but the weather's always a fickle beast. So it's definitely important to take this into account when you're planning your next outage, as it pays to get ahead of it. Reach out to your salesperson or an application specialist for more details on how the climate can affect different brands and what you can do to make the refractory work for you. Thank you, Chris, for the excellent question. Today, we're going to get a little background from one of the smartest people at HWI, our Director of Monolithic Technology, Jeff Bogan. Welcome, Jeff. Hello, Griffin, and thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about you and your role at HWI for the listeners who might not already know? Sure. I'm the Director of Monolithic Technology at Harbison Walker International. I oversee the product development efforts in the Monolithic Technology Group. That includes the castables, uh, gun mixes, uh, plastics, ram mixes, mortars. We also work with uh, equipment and processes uh, and the installation end. Our team also supports the manufacturing plants, our procurement with raw materials, uh, quality assurance, uh, and of course, our, uh, our customers as well. And I've been with the company now, uh, Griffin, for uh, 35 years. That's quite a laundry list of work you do to keep this company running. I think the best way to start here is to understand why dryouts are even necessary. Uh, that, that's a good question, uh, Griffin. I think the best way to understand it and describe it is with river rocks. And if you ever use river rocks to make a campfire, you immediately understand why drying out refractories is critical. Picture a nice roaring fire. You may even be toasting some marshmallows. And all of a sudden, the rocks around the fire start popping or exploding. Uh, this is because the water trapped in, inside the rocks is expanding faster than it can escape. And this stress from the expansion of water causes the rocks to blow up, and it can actually be very dangerous. And it's the same principles uh, that apply to refractory castables and gun mix products that have been installed uh, in the various uh, furnaces and in industry. Uh, the water has been used uh, to install these products, uh, and then before the lining has to be put in service, uh, this water has to be removed. It must be removed in a controlled manner uh, so the pressure from any expanding steam does not damage the uh, refractory lining uh, as with the river rocks. And, and Griffin, when water is heated, it expands about 1,600 times in volume when it goes from uh, liquid water to steam. And this expansion of water is typically not an issue because, for example, if you're boiling water on your stove, you're heating it slowly 
and there's no pressure uh, built up because you're not containing that uh, that steam. Uh, but in a refractory lining, uh, the water is not as easily removed, and so this process must be controlled uh, with a proper dryout schedule. So all of the water is removed, you know, at, at the at the boiling point and shortly above, or is there is there more than just the free water in there? Uh, there there's two types of water uh, that are in there, uh, Griffin. One is is the physical, the free water, and that's in the pores, and that comes off of the boiling point uh, water about 212 degrees. Uh, but there's also uh, chemical water, and it's in there uh, in calcium aluminate phases. The uh, the hydrates is also calcium hydrates and, and aluminum hydrates, and they come off at a wide range of, of temperatures. Uh, but within those, I like to say there's four major dehydration points. Uh, one is the, the boiling point. Uh, one is about 440 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, one is 530 degrees Fahrenheit. One is uh, above 1,000 and 1,020 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, so so if we're talking about phases dehydrating, you know they're they're losing water as going from chemical back to free and then out of the refractory entirely. About how much water is actually leaving the refractory at these points? Well, that's an interesting question, and you can look at two different ways to answer that question. The first one is uh, what's the total amount of water that's being removed, and then the second one is what is that water that's tied up in the hydrates that comes off above two twelve. Well, from the first point, if we think about it, if we're installing about a, a 100,000 pounds of castable into a furnace and we use 6% water, that's uh, 6,000 pounds of, of water or about 720 gallons of water that must be removed. And it must be removed uh, carefully in a controlled way. And, and then the second answer is what, how much water comes off uh, above the boiling point within the hydrates. Well, that's between uh, 15 and 45% of the waters removed after heating to 212. So again, you have uh, over half of the water comes off uh, above 212. And the, and the range uh, is gonna depend upon uh, the type of castable it is. If it's an ultra low cement castable, you're gonna have less water tied up. And if it's a, a high cement conventional castable, you're gonna have more water tied up. But it's interesting just because you have uh, lower or fewer cement hydrates and ultra low cement castable, that doesn't mean it's easier to dry out because hmm. in order to get ultra low cement castables, you're going to have low water contents. Now you have other additives in there, uh, fine aluminas, for example, which are going to pack the matrix. And also you have dispersants to reduce your water. So it's going to become a, a tighter structure. So you have less water, but lower permeability. That's correct. So it's like a lever and in and, and both ways, it's always a challenge to dry it out. Yes. Mm -hmm. What actually happens to the water during the dry out? Well, in most cases, it turns to gold. <laughs> uh, no, it, what's going to happen, Griffin, it's, it's going to start to move from, uh, most cases, it's going to move away from the heat. Some will move to uh, uh, the hot face. Uh, but again, it's as it moves to the cold face, it's going to start to condense on the, on the shell. Uh, and away from it. And as the water moves through, it could encounter obstacles. Uh, and those obstacles could be another insulating lining with more water as it moves through a dense hot face material. It could be an impermeable shell on the, on the back face. Uh, and these factors need to be considered and taken into account when designing a dryout schedule. And uh, why do manufacturers like HWI put dryout fibers in the refractories themselves? A dry fibers are added to increase the permeability. Again, that's the, the ability of a liquid or a gas 
or in this case the steam to move through the lining. Uh, these sac these fibers are sacrificial in nature because uh, they're designed to to melt or burn out and and create those small channels and increase that permeability. And, and the fibers have a, a a very small diameter, about the size of a human hair. But it it's important that they're in there because uh, the effect that they have been is significant in reducing the uh, the steam pressure because of the permeability. So. Well, let's let's put this all together then. We we know that water is released at these specific points based on the hydrates, and that that water will expand by sixteen hundred times when transformed into steam. And we also know that the expansion puts a certain amount of tension on the refractories. Do we just sort of guess and check, or is there some way of predicting the behavior with all the the new technology out there? Well, of course, experience is important too. And, and knowing what, what's worked, knowing what uh, we need to look out for, but also what is the lining configuration? What is the, the type of material? Uh, what type of fibers are in the material for dry out? Uh, but we use many different means to uh, investigate dry out behavior. One is uh, we measure the permeability. Uh, we, we've talked about that. We measure that over different temperatures so we can see how that, that permeability increases with time. We also run a, a, what we call a, a plus test to characterize dry out. And what we do here is we take a, a green sample uh, that's undried. We put it into a, a furnace at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit and see if it's going to essentially uh, blow up or not, if it will spall or not. And uh, we want to test uh, for demonstration purposes with or without the dry out fibers in it. And if we do not include the dry out fibers within about 15 seconds, it, it's like popcorn. It's just blowing up. But with the same, the same exact product, with the dried fibers, uh, we can pull it out of 2,000 degree furnace intact. We also have computer modeling that we can use to help determine pressures that are built up. So with that, we use variables like the permeability, the strength, and the water content to determine if everything will be kosher? Yes. Uh, and, and again, you also have to look at the lining thickness, uh, the configuration. Is it an impermeable shell in the background? Is there, are there weep holes? Uh, all things like that have to be considered as well. So with our customers, the time it takes to install and dry out a refractory lining is time that they aren't meeting their production needs. Uh, so faster dry outs are more necessary than ever. Our online dry out schedule helps with that, being 100F per hour with only a six-hour cure. But can we take it even further than that with like maybe several hundred degrees an hour? Sure, that's a good question, Griffin. And and we're looking at some tests now in our lab to increase the dry out rate, dry things out faster. Uh, an interesting observation we've seen in our in our lab is, yeah, we can dry things out quicker without spoiling the lining, but we've actually uh, seen if you go too fast, even if you don't have any cracking on the hot face, you can uh, negatively impact the strength. Sure. So that's, uh, again, something we've been able to measure in the lab. But with all that in, taken into account, we've been uh, able to identify uh, that yes, we can move faster. And as we have a, a product uh, we're going to launch very soon, Greenlight 45L GR uh, 408. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What does the 408 mean? The 408 is a 400 degrees per hour uh, heat up rate, and the 8 is 8 inches thick uh, maximum. And there's no backup lining uh, with this. So with this new product, as long as you have a, a refractory lining made of less than eight inches of Greenlight 45L GR408, you can heat it up uh, for your dry out at 400 degrees F per hour? Yes, that's correct. Up to 400 degrees uh, F per hour. And that's still the six six hour air cure? 
Yes, that's a that's the uh, the six hour air cure. So that's an industry leading dry out then. Yes, mm -hmm. and we wow. have the physical properties that to demonstrate that even at that faster rate, uh, the physical properties are still maintained. Wow, that's incredible. Thank you, Jeff. It's been really enlightening to talk about all the amazing science behind dry outs and the work that's been done recently. We're going to take a quick breather now and then bring in Mark Palmasino to put the real world knocks into dry out technology. This month, we'll be introducing you to a little refractory hack to make the most of those quick turnaround repairs. Sometimes your need for high quality HWI refractory brick may exceed the availability of on-hand inventory, but there may still be a way to accomplish the final installed dimensions you're looking for. If you don't have the straight bricks needed for your lining, consider using keys, arches, or wedges in alternating orientation. By reversing every other brick, you can negate taper entirely and achieve a straight line. Check with our engineering group at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com for even more odd sets usable to achieve your refractory lining with the shortest possible lead time. Make HWI your one and only call for refractory solutions. And we're back. Earlier, we talked dry out fibers, hydration phases, and explosive spalling with Jeff Bogan. But now I'm here with Mark Palmasino to put all that science to use. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Griffin. I thought you'd be a great addition to this talk because of your work supporting the aluminum industry, an industry with some of the most intense monolithic refractory linings I've ever seen. But before we get into that, uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, Griffin, I, I worked for 12 years in R&D at, at HWI in monolithics, uh, brick and strategic projects. I actually started my career working for Jeff, and we tackled some really tricky dry out problems over the years, developed some pretty cool products that made dry outs safer and faster uh, for our customers. After a five-year hiatus from refractories, I'm, I'm back at HWI. You just liked it so much, you, uh, you couldn't leave it behind. I couldn't stay away from the heat. Welcome back. So now that I have a better understanding of why we need to do dry outs and what to be careful of, let's switch gears and talk about the real world. Outside of the clean room and controlled conditions, and USA's top mines, when we test refractories for their dryout capabilities, we basically just chuck a brick into the furnace. But in the real world, we have a massive unit, bigger than a house, with a burner at one end and heat dissipating throughout the, the vessel. H how do we even control that? Well, the real world is a lot different from, from the lab. And, um, you know, let me tell you, it's a lot different writing a dryout schedule for the real world than it is thinking about them at, at the research lab. But, I mean, it's difficult because, because failure is catastrophic. I mean, refractory spalling events can occur. I mean, you create enough steam pressure that the refractory will rupture and pieces start flying around the furnace. I mean, it sounds scary. And if you've ever been, have been at, a, at a factory when a, when a lining spalls, you won't ever forget it. I mean, equipment can get damaged and, and, and people can get hurt, too. So dryout specialists outside of HWI and the end customer or who, or who takes care of a dryout in an actual factory location. About how often are those specialists used in the industry? Uh, a fair amount of the time. Um, I would say a majority. When you're doing a dry out, you have the, the luxury of installing auxiliary burners at positions within the furnace, you know, that are unique for each furnace. You instrument the furnace with a lot of thermocouples and control the heat up schedule from a laptop. So you have folks on site 24 seven uh, monitoring both the data and observations of the lining uh, until the job's done. 
I mean, the guys that, that do this work have experience and, and nerves of steel, to say the least. When we're qualifying refractories for certain dryouts, we say that this refractory has has this dryout capability and this refractory has this this dryout capability, but we don't really have a lot of information about how refractories work together. Whereas many applications actually have a need for that dual component lining in their application, like maybe a corrosion resistant hot face with an insulating backup. How does that change the dryout schedule? Well, each component has, has a different water content and a different degree of permeability. So the permeability allows water to flow through the lining, but there has to be enough room in the pores of the refractory for the water to flow into. So you have to account for this in the dry-out schedule. Um, If you think about the water flowing through the lining, like cars driving down the highway, it could be like taking three lanes of traffic moving at 55 miles per hour, but then you hit some construction with a 35 mile per hour speed limit sign in one lane. It's a really dynamic situation. So we have to be conservative on the multi-component linings or we get the equivalent of a traffic jam. Luckily, the dryout model helps us understand these complicated situations and account for it. It's actually kind of fortunate then because the insulating backup would actually have better permeability than the hot face lining? It might, but it holds a lot of water. Okay, right. So it, it ends up being a barrier not by the pore size, but by the water concentration. Right. And so often in aluminum furnaces in particular, sometimes the backup lining is a dense material in order to facilitate removing the water during the dry out. Hmm. So what kind of things can we do in designing a refractory lining to uncomplicate these dryouts? Well, what you can do to take the, the brands and the brand configuration um, out of the equation a bit is, is things outside of the materials. So wicking rope, if it's a furnace hearth, weep holes, these give easy paths to move water through the lining. Um, this is especially important in an aluminum furnace hearth that could be as thick as 25 inches. The other thing that's important is, is air change over in the furnace. So, so some steam comes out of the hot face. So if you have moist, stagnant air in the furnace, then you're forcing all of the water out the cold face. So having a healthy air exchange within your furnace allows some of that steam to come out the hot face so that not so much water, i.e. traffic, is passing out through the cold face of the lining. So, so these, these refractories are actually sweating on the hot face as well as dripping on the cold face? Right on. Wow. It seems like a very wet situation, especially in all that heat. When your customers come to you with a dryer request, how do you approach it? Well, first, we look at the thickness of the materials um, and, and then how much water and what kind of dryout scenario is a given refractory designed for. So our job's a lot easier when we have plus rated materials that on their own can all be dried out at 100 degrees F an hour. So thickness of materials, how much water is in them, and then what kind of dry out scenario are they designed for? You look at the whole furnace and there often there's many different lining configurations within one furnace. So you might have different thicknesses and materials in the furnace opening compared to the hearth, compared to the roof compared to the upper sidewalls. So you look at what is the most difficult part of the furnace and base the schedule off of that. And that sort of goes back to what we were talking about before with how challenging it is to to control a dry out and how those specialists are kind of operating on an extremely stressful schedule to get it done. That's right. So so we're being pushed by customers to dry furnaces out faster. But what is key for, for those dry out experts is making sure that the 
the temperature inside the furnace is uniform because we assume when we design a dry out schedule that the temperature is uniform. Yeah. I mean, if you have all those thermocouples in the furnace and one of them's reading low, you have to believe the one that's running really low or something really bad could happen. Okay, help me get an idea in this aluminum furnace, how intense are these refractory linings there and what would the dry out look like for that? Sure. I mean, this doesn't go back very far, but just in the last uh, nine months, two come to mind. The first is like a thick hearth repair. So you're not rebuilding the whole furnace, but just rebuilding the floor of the furnace. So this one was 19 inches of ArmorTech 65 ALC, our aluminum resistant castable, and seven and a half inches of VersaFlow 45 AL, another dense castable as a backup. So you've got 26 inches of refractory. The armor tech is built to be tough, strong, and dense and to resist aluminum charge banging into it and aluminum metal penetrating it. But you have to balance this with the dry out characteristics when you engineer it. Um, that, that could pull you in two different directions. So you have armor tech 65 ALC as part of a 26 inch thick lining. That dry out schedule was, was just under five days with four hold temperatures in it. With wicking rope and other things involved as well? Absolutely. So I, we threw everything in the toolbox at it. Well, it can get worse. If when you do a complete furnace rebuild, one that comes to mind had eight different refractory materials in it. Each material had a thickness from three inches to 13 and a half inches. The maximum thickness was in the hearth. It was 22 and a half inches. So when you look at experience and you crunch the numbers and, you know, you use everything at your disposal, that dry out was just under six days long with five holds at temperature. Wow. Talk about sweating on a custom dry out schedule. It's a far cry from your six hour air cure and hundred degrees F per hour single component schedule we have. Absolutely. It, I mean, it, it, it never gets routine actually. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a great point with the planning. It, it pays to be proactive with dryouts because if you're ordering this refractory and you're installing it, and then you call Mark Pomasino and say, hey, I need a dryout for this refractory I just installed, it's going to take some time to get that ready, and you're probably going to be surprised at how long it's going to take. Absolutely. I mean, safety, safety comes first, um, but there is always pressure, pun intended, um, <laughs> to make the dryout shorter because every day our customers are down that's time their furnaces are not on and they're not making money. So uh, you err on the side of caution, but realistically to satisfy our customers' needs, we have to have the products and the technology in place in order to plan shorter dryouts that are also safe. You mentioned with permeability and, and, and its role in dryout, what does it mean to dry out a refractory that has been applied over top of existing already dried out refractory? Well, it depends. If that, if that material's been in service, you better make sure that what you are casting against has enough permeability so that the water can flow through it easily. If it doesn't, that water's going to have to find a different path out of the furnace. And so that can throw a dry out, you know, right on its ear. So, so if that material isn't permeable, you have to, to wick the water out with the wicking rope around that impermeable material, or you have to chip some existing refractory material away to create a clear path for the water to get to the cold face and get out of the furnace. This really takes the dry out discussion into the world of application. Yes, it does. 
Thank you, Mark. That was great fun. It really was a pleasure talking with you and, and with Jeff about the truly deep history of dry out science and technology. It's also great to hear that the advancements never stop and HWI always has new things on the horizon to better serve their customers. If you want to learn more about dry out technology, the aluminum industry, or the new Greenlight 45L GR408, be sure to reach out to us at technical-marketing at thinkhwi.com. Lastly, don't forget to hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify to get a reminder for the next episode of High Temperature Times. Until next time.